John chapter 4 is where we are as the kids are going. Let me read today's scripture lesson. We are now in chapter 4 in verse 27. John chapter 4, verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I have ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, disciples urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when a Samaritan came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed, this is indeed the Savior of the world. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. John 4. Working through the chapter, actually working through the book, and we're in chapter 4 and working through the chapter as well. This is now the third sermon in 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 this chapter as we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book. If you missed any of the series, you can, you can go online, download them off our website, CDs in the back, uh, you can join our podcast, or if you really have nothing to do, you can watch the weekly video. Uh, let me start this morning asking you this question, what does it take to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ? What does it take to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ? Now when I say a bold witness for Jesus Christ, I do not mean a bold jerk for Jesus, that's not what I mean. You know what I'm talking about, that self-righteous person that, you know, wants nothing really to do with you, doesn't care about you, doesn't love you, doesn't want really know anything about you, just to tell you how bad you are and how much God loves them. Not that kind kind of witness, right? What I'm thinking about is the one who is bold in generosity, the one who is bold in patience and kindness and love, one who is bold and, and listens well. And then boldly declares, demonstrates the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Someone who is boldly looking for opportunities that God gives them to turn the natural conversations around to the spiritual. What does it take to have that kind of bold witness for Jesus Christ? Well, in chapter 4, there's a beautiful narrative of how the Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest missionary and evangelist that ever lived, takes this woman, this, this irreligious uh, outcast, and brings her to himself, and she turns around and becomes a bold witness for the gospel. We have a lot to learn from them this morning. Let me bring you up to speed in this encounter. Jesus left Judea and went through Samaria. The hated race. 
He could have went around as many Jews do. They go the long way so he doesn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus was on a divine appointment. He just had to make a stop that his father had for him. They stop at this well in, near Sychar and his disciples go into the town to get food. And along comes a Samaritan woman by herself to the well in the middle of the day. She's come to draw water. She came alone because, as the text tells us, she was an outcast. She was, she was an immoral woman who had five husbands, and the man she was with was not her husband. Jesus looks at her and tells her to give him a drink. She's somewhat bewildered that he would ask her for a drink, being a Jew, and Jesus tells her that if you had asked him for a drink, he would have given you living water. Still confused, since Jesus brought nothing to draw from the well from, Jesus explains to her that this living water that he can give her is permanent, it's abundant, it's eternally satisfying. In fact, it's welling up, he says, to eternal life. She tells him in verse 15 that she would like this water. Give me some. She doesn't understand what Jesus is really getting at. She's still looking at the natural. And Jesus, of course, is talking about himself and and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see in chapter 7. Jesus then reveals to her that he is very well aware of her sexual immorality. And the woman says, well, you must be a prophet. What you're telling to me is true and, and revealing and exposing truth And then she turns around and talks about worship. She kind of doesn't change the conversation, but she realizes she's sinful, and now she wants to talk about how do I approach God. In chapter 4, 21 through 24, Jesus makes it clear that worship is no longer about a location, whether you should worship on Mount Gerizim, where the the Samaritans did, or in Jerusalem, where the Jewish people were, were commanded in Scripture to do. That now God was seeking true worshipers who would worship him in spirit and truth. And, and Jesus is saying that is made possible because I'm here. The Messiah, the Christ, is here. Look at verse 26 of chapter 4. Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Therefore, he himself is the new temple. Jesus is saying, I am the new place where we meet God. No longer do you need, when, when we worship, we no longer need a building to do so, a priesthood or, or the sacrificial system, worship is through the Son, through the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And, and with this revelation, he says, the one, the Messiah who you're looking for, who can satisfy this longing, I am here, I am the Christ. And that's exactly where we ended last week. And that's where we pick up our text this morning in verse 27. First thing we're going to see is the students' reactions. I'm calling them students rather than disciples this morning because in a moment we're going to see the students are going to get schooled. All right? The S does fit my outline, I have to admit. But these disciples, these students of Jesus are going to get a lesson on what it means to be a true disciple, an evangelist, and a good missionary that we are called to be. Verse 27. Just then, as Jesus is revealing to this woman, I am the Messiah... His disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with the woman. But no one said to her, obviously, what are you seeking? Why are you here? What do you want? Or no one said to Jesus, why are you talking with her? So here the disciples are returning. He's he's encountering this woman at the well, and the disciples are coming back with food. Now, commentators say different things about what kind of food they would find in a non-kosher town. 
Some commentators point out that fruit and dry food is, is not as easily contaminated. And maybe they got some of that. Or maybe they just dismissed the whole, hey, they were in, they were in, a, non, you know, in, a, in, a, in a non-Jewish place anyway. No one knows. But what we do know is that when they get back to this well, this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman had come to an end. I don't know if, I don't know if she saw them in a the distance. Well, Jesus saw them in the distance, ended the conversation. I'm the Messiah, story over. But they marveled, they were amazed, they were astonished that he was talking with a woman. Jewish men did not speak to women publicly. Jewish men particularly did not speak to Samaritan women who were all alone. So this is not only a case of, of let's say, some racial bias, but certainly uh, a case of gender bias on the part of the disciples. In that day and in that culture, women were not treated all that well. I got a little side note in my, in my, as I was going over this and studying it, I wanted to make it not like what we see in radical Islam murdering and raping their children and their wives. That's not what I'm talking about when I say not treated well. They were just treated second class. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying there's a difference. But notice in our text and throughout the scripture, whenever God our Savior shows up, there is honor, there is dignity, and there is respect for women. Whenever the gospel shows up, whenever Jesus shows up, there is honor, respect, and dignity for women. Okay? So guys, if the gospel is pressing in your heart, growing in your heart, there's going to be honor and respect for your wife. It's that simple. Sometimes, though, and, I mean, you see this, though, even though the, the disciples in their biases, at least look what it says, they kept things to themselves. You know, sometimes when God speaks... Well, we see his providence. We see him working all things out together for the good, for those who love him. It's good sometimes to just be quiet, right? Just keep your eyes open, man. Sometimes trying to figure everything out is just a waste of time. Even if you do and you say, God is doing this, there's probably five million other things he's doing that we don't see. You know, I've said this before. I think it's, in fact, I'm positive. It is really exhausting, very exhausting and very stressful to play God. The job's already taken. Sometimes it's good to just shut up, keep your eyes open, and keep moving. And the disciples are like, uh, I'm not asking him. You ask him. I'm not asking him. I ain't going to say don't ask her. I'm not asking her either. We got some food here. Let's eat. You know what I mean? That's what they're thinking. And what else? You, what, what's cool about this text, too, is what's going on is you could tell that somebody, John, the apostle, no matter what your professor in school tells you, is an eyewitness of the account. He, he, he's talking about and making it really clear what's going on. We have an eyewitness account of what actually took place. And it's obvious that the disciples at this point, the students, are clueless. You want something to eat? Well, I got something to eat. Oh, really? What, I, does anybody come out here? Right? That shouldn't surprise us, though. In John 1, we saw the prologue. Jesus came to those who were his, but they did not receive him. We see in John chapter 2, Jesus does a miracle and turns water into wine, and only his disciples believed. Hmm. Then in John chapter 2 as well, we see Jesus in the temple and, and driving them out, and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. But really? 46 years it took us. Jesus is talking about his body. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Really? Climb into my mother's womb? What are all these things, what do what all these narratives have in common? Blindness. Samaritan woman, I'll give you water. 
Really? Living water. It's eternal life. Oh, give me a bucket. How am I going to get down and get that water? Really? Darkness. That's what John wants to teach us, that the world is in darkness. In fact, he said so in John 3.19. Judgment has come into the world. Light has come into the world, remember? And people love the darkness, then, then, then run to the light so that their deeds and their works would be exposed. They don't want that to happen. See, John is teaching us and throughout this gospel account that without the monumental working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, awakening us to truth, we are all spiritually dead. We are all spiritually blind. We are all spiritually unresponsive. Like the Jews, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, and like these disciples. Look at verse 31. Go down to 31. This is after the women leave the water pot and, and beelines at the town. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything? You know, can I go back in my mother's womb? Can you get me this water of spiritual? Here's, here's a bucket. Give me some. Uh, the, the, Rabbi, uh, who brought you food? Who gave you something? You know, as I said before, I like to, I like to before we judge, let, let's, let's relate here for a moment here. It's easy to sit back and say, man, how dense could they be? But how often does the natural and the spiritual things of this world blind us to the things of God? Blind us to things of God. And, and the things in which God is trying to show us, particularly things concerning joining him, participating with him, and living on mission with him. Jesus just finished bringing this immoral woman, this outcast, in the middle of the day to himself and revealed himself to her. She's so excited. She runs into the town to tell everyone about this Jewish man who claims to be the Messiah. And what is the disciples' reaction? As they say in Italian, manja, manja. Eat. Now, to be fair, maybe they didn't know what was going on. Maybe they didn't have harvest eyes. We're going to get to that. But if they did, at least they would ask the question, what are you guys talking about? You know, oh, I, I, she was giving me water. I brought it. You know, they just, hey, let's eat. Never mind what happened. Right? Now, can we, can we as followers of Jesus Christ, can, can we be honest this morning? Can we confess, agree, agree, change directions that sometimes we don't have spiritual eyes as well? Do a better and bolder job seeing the spiritual realities around us. Can we agree on that? Can we as a people in 2016, as we step from this year into next year, be a people like the Apostle Paul who told the Colossae church in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he said, continue to, he says he's writing to this church, he says to them, continue steadfast in prayer. Pray. He says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for me, for us, that God may open us a door for the word, for the word of God, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I might make it clear. Pray for me, man. Pray, have your eyes open. Pray for me. Watch out for me and pray that God would show me and God would open doors and that would make the word of God clear, he says, which is how I ought to speak. I want to do this, Paul says. I mean, here's the great apostle who, who is awesome at communicating truth. No one other than Jesus had better skills of turning conversations around to the spiritual and declaring and demonstrating the good news of Jesus. He's asking the church of Colossae to pray for him. Pray that I, I would see. Pray that I would be thankful. Pray that God would open up the door. Pray that when I speak it would be clear. Pray for me. Now, I don't know about you, but 
That should remind us what God has placed us here for. God always brings us into a relationship with Jesus. He draws us in, right? No one comes to the Father but through me. So we get drawn into Christ only to send us out into the world. He seeks us and saves us and sends us. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him as our mission statement here at King's. It's a good reminder. Number two, Paul's prayer should give you encouragement. (laughs) This great pastor and preacher says, help me to make it clear. I'm like, that's a good prayer for me. Help me to make it clear. Help me to get out of the way. Help me not to be proud. Help me to be humble and just listen to the Holy Spirit. Speak the truth. Make much of Jesus. Get myself out of the way. Can Can you help me make it clear? Pray for me. In fact, in Colossians 4, which I just read, when it says how I ought to speak is not the word preach. It's the word to talk in plain language. We call it gospelizing when we did the gospel, when we did acts together. Just plain language. In other words, he's praying that God would open doors to give him opportunities through ordinary language, through life situations, in response to prayer, and having spiritual eyes open as we wake up each morning, King's Chapel, 2016. We look for opportunities. It begins with faith-filled prayer to the king to see spiritually, to have spiritual eyes open about his kingdom and his gospel. You know, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Are we praying for opportunities Family, is there somewhere that you could mark that down and say, for 2016, I'm going to pray for opportunities. I'm going to pray that God opened doors. I'm going to pray for clarity. This woman was so excited about living water. She was so excited to drink of the forgiveness. It propelled her into the community. Look at verse 28. The woman left her water jar, went away into the town. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What you find in the New Testament is not this mission mandate where we're twisting people's arms and we're forcing people to tell others about Jesus. I'm not saying a mission mandate is, is always wrong. But I'm saying in the New Testament, what we find is when the king and the master and the Lord gives us living water to drink and the people drink this water, it overflows and it produces people who live to tell others about Jesus Christ. The student's reaction at this point shows us that they just did not get it yet. Look at the Savior's explanation. Jesus' words, verse 34, if you look down in your Bibles, verses 34 through 38, are between and in contrast to the disciples who were still in darkness and somewhat dull to the Samaritan's woman who is exuberant and, and enthusiastic going into the town. So there's a contrast there, but also his explanation, Jesus speaks, he's speaking to his disciples who are dull, looking back to what, where they're at, and looking forward to the revival that will take place as we end this narrative together. So he's looking back, wants to deal with the disciples, but looks forward to the Samaritan revival that we'll see at the end of this uh, ver- uh, narrative. Look at verse 32 now. So Jesus is speaking, he says to them, I have, I says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Rabbi, eat. I have food you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything? Jesus said to them, guys, you're getting schooled. Listen up. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Every commentator that I've read points to the echoing words of Deuteronomy 8. 
of Moses. Same verse that Jesus used to to defeat Satan in the temptation in the wilderness. It says in Deuteronomy 8.3, that he, God, humbled you, talking to the Israelites, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. Family, Jesus was persistent and continuously going about doing the will and the work of his father. The immediate context in this, in this schooling for these disciples, of course, is sharing himself with the Samaritan woman. He had to. There was necessity. He had to go through Samaria, it says in, in chapter 4, verse 4. His sole mission was doing the will of the Father, making the Father known, and accomplishing his work, which ultimately ended on the cross. He says in John 6, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So even though Jesus was hungry, even though Jesus was weary, even though Jesus was, was, I'm sure, thirsty from his journey, this divine appointment that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman was not only doing the will and the work of the Father, but it was of greater sustenance. It was of greater satisfaction than anything that was brought to him from the town. I would have eaten. (laughs) He's so wrapped up in ministering and caring and bringing this woman to himself that food just eluded him. Now, Kent Hughes, in a wonderful commentary said he has called Preaching the Word, said this. He said, after the initial verbal sparring between the woman uh, and and Jesus, the conversation began to pick up and so did he. He was exhilarated in the service of God. He was feasting on the potential he saw in that woman's life. He was so absorbed in it what could happen to her that he forgot himself, end quote. Wow. I guess, the, I guess the question is, is that how we view the will and the work of God? Now, I don't think he's telling us that we can't eat in that sense, although fasting is part of it, I'm sure. But I think as for a moment, Jesus is trying to show his disciples. He's trying to lead them. He's trying to show them that they would also embrace the same high priority of mission that Jesus had, having spiritual eyes, looking for bold opportunities to know and to do God's will and God's work. In Spain, 12th century, there's an old proverb that said this, all laws go the way that kings desire. All laws go the way that kings desire. Well, around the 12th century, there was a debate in that country on what they should use. They were going to use either the Gothic or the Roman prayer books in their religious services. The question within the religious circles made it all the way to the king. His name was Alfonso, the king of sixth. King Alfonso decided to see, said, you know what, let's leave it to chance. So he threw the book, of, uh, the, book the Gothic prayer book, the Roman prayer book, in the fire. And he said, that one that survives, the ordeal should be chosen. So he threw them both in there. He said, whatever one survives, that's the one we will use. However, when the Gothic prayer book survived the blaze, the king immediately threw it back into the fire and chose the Roman liturgy instead. (laughs) Ultimately, the matter was decided by the king. All laws go the way that kings desire. You can see why. Family, I think sometimes we approach the will and the work of God in that way. 
We pray for God's will. We want God's will. But then when God reveals what we ought to do, we continue trying to find his way, find his will. Like I'm looking for some confirmation, sometimes in the dumbest places that you've ever seen. Oh, yeah, I've been, you know, I, God confirmed, you know, and I saw this cloud that looked like, and I was just, and not that God couldn't work through the clouds, but, you know, you're looking at the person going, really, that wasn't God, man. I don't know what you're talking about, but that certainly wasn't him, you know? You know what I'm talking about. You look back and said, no, that was it. I was, I was, that was the pizza I ate, right? Or worse yet, people read the scripture. I'm wondering what God's will is. Well, it's right here. Should I forgive them? Well, it's right here. Should I love them? Well, it's right here, right? And then they're unwilling to yield to it. You know, why was Jesus so wrapped up and convinced and set and persistently set out to do the will and the work of the Father? Good question? You don't have to guess. John chapter 5, Jesus said, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Sounds good. Verse 19, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Why does Jesus do it persistently? Love. Love. Love's the answer. Not only does the Father love the Son, the Son loves the Father, but also the Father and the Son love you. And he loves the people he sent you to love and share his love and truth with. It's love. So the will and the work of God for you is loving people. That's what Jesus did. He loved them and he shared himself with them. That's what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 35. Do you not say that there are four months? Then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, students, disciples, didn't get it yet? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Your spiritual eyes, open them. Stop being dull. Stop being blind. Look. See that the fields are white for harvest. Now, you know, he's not saying, you know, wait four months. He's using a common everyday idiom and, and things that people do. And he, and he takes it and he, he's figuratively using it to teach his disciples. There's a huge harvest out there. It's an agricultural culture. Sowing seed, reaping seed. Uh, sowing seed, reaping a, a harvest, Right? I mean, you toil the ground, you prepare the ground, you scatter the seed, you pull the weeds. You're not sure what's going to take and what's not going to take in those days. Some will bear fruit, some won't bear fruit. Then after four months, whoop, comes up. And maybe it's corn, maybe it's wheat, depends on the region. But sowing is what? Sowing's work. There's not a whole lot of joy of tilling the ground and working hard. There's a lot of joy when you sit back and four months later and the harvest is ready to be plucked psalms 126 those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy and the harvest comes it's fun it's that's their livelihood it gives you joy and energy the fruit of your labors and jesus is saying using grain or fruit and and this culture and this agriculture culture saying look at the fields the samaritans look at them they're coming there's an urgency are you aware Go out into the world, scatter seed, tell people about the life and death of Jesus and sin and and their sin and what Jesus has done to save them from their sins. We don't know what will take root, but he says, look, look at the fields. I mean, I'm not there, and I know it's a little injector here, but 
Can you imagine just for a moment, Jesus at this well, he's talking to his disciples. The woman had gone into the town. Maybe, maybe he saw the crowd. And look, look, look at, look at the field, look at, look at the harvest. Can you see? Do we realize how short of a time in the urgency of the message? I'll never forget the time God called me to preach. And he called me to pastor. And I was dreaming about what it was going to look like. I'm like, oh, all right. I, I, first, at first I thought, no, not me, somebody else. But as the time was settling in and I began to see some gifts emerge, I'm like, all right. I, you know. And then, you know, as many of you know, I was a, a correction officer for 25 years. I remember, walk, I remember driving and parking, walking into the prison, having this grandeur of not going there anymore. <laughs> of what it would be like, what it will be like years from now. When I'm done and I'm, at the, I'm, at, I'm pastoring a church, I'm preaching the word, I'm in ministry, you know, and I'm thinking about this, I'm going through, I think it's four gates and two doors. And on the fourth gate slammed behind me, I looked, and the Lord was like, really? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I thought, it's right in front of me. And the Lord had to slap me upside the head and say, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Right now, you got work to do. And that, let me tell you, that will change your perspective from, about your job, your neighborhood, your work, your friends, your family. And when does it all start? Verse 36, already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sow and reaper may joy, rejoice together. You know, when you sow and you reap, and when the farmers usually did their own land, they sowed, they reap, they would enjoying it together and just reaping the harvest and enjoying the harvest. But oftentimes, it was a shared event, 37. For here the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. Sometimes it's teamwork, right? Have you ever spent, <laughs> I've done this, have you ever spent hours, energy, money, time, just loving people, that's cool, we should do that, and no matter what, and you're loving people and you care for people, years go by, and then someone shows up the person never meant and says, you need Jesus. Okay, what do I need to do? And they get saved. <laughs> You're like, all right, that's cool, Lord. I see who's in charge. You know what I mean? That'll deflate you really quickly. You'll know what team you're on then. You know, if you're like, oh, that ain't fair. Like, no, it's your, your wrong kingdom. It's yours. But if you're like, oh, awesome. You know, even if they go to another gospel-centered church, awesome. One more soul, you know, dragged out of the fire and, and brought to eternal life, right? You're like, you're rejoicing. That and you know what team you're on. It reminds me of Paul's admonition to the church of Corinth. He says, what is Apollos? There was division and divisiveness in the church. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, right? That's all. Through whom you believe. They were servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each one. I planted, Paul says, but Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. Amen? He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one receives his wages according to his labor, but we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, or we could say God's kingdom. And Jesus reminds them that some have even labored, and you know what? You're just sitting back reaping. Verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I mean, it appears from reading that that Jesus is talking about Samaritans. At least that's the way I read it. As, as, as there was someone else in that area that, does, that has been preparing 
toiling seed, but you're just coming and now you're reaping. And that's the immediate text. There's difference of, of opinions on this, but if you remember in John 3, John the Baptist is near Anon, near Salim, which is not far from Shechem, which is right near the well of Sychar, which we're talking about. So I look at that and I read, well, the common, just the common sense kind of reading is, Jesus is saying, look, John the Baptist was here for eight months, at least on and off, and he is preaching baptism of repentance for the coming of the Lord. Now look, someone else has toiled, and look, now you're the one that's reaping. And sometimes that's the way it is. That's the way it is sometimes. But it's not just John the Baptist, as we shall see. He wasn't the only one. Sowing, uh, uh, sowing the seed. The Samaritan herself planted many seeds. Look at verse 28 with me. Move that on. 28. So the woman left her water jar. Chapter 4, verse 28. Left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see. Let me see if I can get that better for you. Huh, all right. It says the Samaritan's confession. The Samaritan's confession. So the woman left her water jar, verse 28, and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming. That is an imperfect verb, kept coming. So we have a crowd coming. And they kept coming to him. Okay, let's put this in perspective, okay? Here's a woman, a Samaritan woman, whose testimony, whose witness was not even allowed in a court of law in that day. Okay? It was not admissible. A moral woman, a moral outcast, leaves her water jar, the very thing she brought to the well to Jacob to fill and bring back to her, abandons it, and excitedly runs into town to tell others about Jesus. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, family, that's a hyperbole and exaggeration. We use them all the time. There's no way that Jesus was there for like four days telling her all that she ever did. Okay, but she's so excited and overjoyed that her reaction is a hyperbole with her encounter with Jesus. And all this without one single evangelism class. I'm not against evangelism classes. Don't, did you hear me say that? All without one single evangelism class. Come, right? Without any instruction, look, we're all missionaries. We're all ambassadors for Christ, right? So wherever you live and whatever you do, obviously, you know, she, she is excited. She leaves her water jars. She was coming back. She had to come back for them. She wasn't just going to leave them. But at that moment, she was so set on telling others about Christ, she just leaves her water jars. Now, there's a, I read, I must have read, I don't know, 15 different commentaries on this. She left the water jars. It's a parable of her leaving her past life and moving on. It's a parable of the old Jewish ritual, all kinds of things. I don't know. I, I don't like to do too much of that. All I know is she left the water and she left it. Maybe Jesus was thirsty. And maybe she had, maybe he had nothing to drink. She's like, all right, they come back with food. Here's water. I'll leave it here. I'll be back. I don't know. That seems more plausible to me. I'm not really sure. But one thing I know is this living water that was promised to her earlier was now bubbling up within her, and she had this urgency sharing the good news with the men in her town that she met Jesus. I think it's, I think it's genuine um, witness or genuine evidence of her conversion. You remember there was a need in verse 15, give me this water so I don't have to keep on being thirsty. 
Then Jesus says, you know what? There's some sin in your heart. You need to look at that. He says, you're, you must be a prophet because you see the sin in my heart. And then he says, yeah, you're, you're, you need living water. In verse 26, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that could give it to you. And then she's just like beelines it to the city. Can this be? I mean, men, do you think that the men in that town knew of her? Yes, she did. Yes, he did. Yes, they did. And she just wants to tell others about Jesus. Can this be the Christ? Now, in the original language, that means she's saying, surely this can be him in a sense of hope. But she didn't go back to the town and say, hey, listen, I know what my past life was all about. I know all the things I did wrong. Listen up. I got some truth to tell you now. She was cautious, wisely so. A guy named Homer Kent in his commentary says this, the woman immediately wanted to give testimony to others of what she had found, but she did so with utmost tact. It would have been unseemly, presumptuous, and probably ineffective for this woman to attempt to teach the men of the city regarding spiritual truth. Her background hardly qualified her to speak with authority on religious and spiritual matters. Therefore, her statement to them was phrased in a deliberately cautious way so as not to arouse antagonism. Perfect. Some see her doubts as saying she hadn't made a full commitment. I don't. I see her enthusiasm. I see her deep concerns of others. I see her running into town not caring about her reputation. At least opening dialogue. All of a sudden, she goes from coming to the well incognito in the middle of the day when no one's around, and now she's openly going into the city and Sychar and telling men about Jesus. That is a clear indication that when the gospel takes root, we are not a respecter of persons. We're not that kind of people. We need to tear down cultural barriers, social barriers, racial barriers in order to tell others that God loves them and tell them about Christ. Or at least like this woman, stop living in the past. Some of you are living in the past. You don't want to open your mouth. God has done a great work. You don't want to open your mouth because you're living in the past. What will they say? The past is the past and Jesus died for that past. Some people are so riddled with shame and fear of others, they won't do that. Look at the Samaritan woman. Her past is her past, but her future looks very bright. Living water. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher, preached a sermon and spoke these words to the congregation. They're kind of hard words, but this is what he said. Some of you good people who do nothing except read little Plymouth books, go to public meetings, Bible readings, prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be would be a good deal better Christian if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual irritable. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in things of God, no objective, in fact, to live for, and who wonders if you begin to groan, to murmur, and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. Tough words. Tough words. It was Driscoll said, soft words produce hard people, but hard words produce soft people. This woman didn't care. 
She had a message to tell. She just witnessed the Messiah speak to her and love her where she was. He broke every cultural barrier and loved a sexually immoral woman and gave her life by revealing himself to her. May we never shy away from others because they have particular sins in their life. Let's be honest. We all have particular sins. Maybe not the one they're struggling with. But God has called us to love them and lead them and show them and declare to them with words and demonstrate in love the truth about Jesus Christ. And look what happened in verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay there. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. What a beautiful ending, right? What a beautiful ending to a beautiful story, to a beautiful narrative. They hear this woman's testimony. It's so powerful. They're running out to the well to see Jesus, right? They're coming out. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, what would this look like? They're coming out in droves. They come to him. They talk with him. And then Jesus, smiling, with a crowd surrounding him, walking down a dirt road heading into the city of Sychar to spend two days with them. And I can see the smile on his face, not only because he's doing the will and the work of the Father, but the joy it must have brought him. But the joy it must have brought him. Salvation will be in that town today for two days. And the joy of knowing he's doing the will and the work of the Father. I said earlier in this book, but I think it's important to say now, you don't want disciples of you. You never want people to hear and believe your testimony and it ends there. Faith is not faith as long as it rests on someone else's words and testimony. You want them to have an encounter with the living, breathing Christ, the eternal Christ who has been resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. Then there will be a true Christian experience. And verse 42 to close. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's not a disparagement of her testimony. It's just stating the fact that what you said was true. It's just confirming everything that she said, that her witness and her testimony is true. And there is a confession. Indeed, this is the Savior of the world. Now, no miracles that we saw happening in the first two chapters Maybe there was miracles there. John doesn't tell us. If there was some, it wasn't important. These people, look what it says. It says in the scripture that he shared their word with them. These people believed in Jesus, believed in his word, and believed that he is indeed the savior of the world. That was their confession, verse 41. Savior of the world. Who's the world? The world's you and me. It means the moral insiders like Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the Bible-thumping Hebrew of Hebrews. The world is the half-race Samaritans who are hated by the Jews. The world is the Samaritan woman, the sexually immoral woman who had five husbands, and the one she's not with now she's not, is not her husband. Jesus came to all of us, but we must admit our need. And that's why it says the word Savior implies, explicitly implies the need for a rescue. We saw in chapter 3 that John says the world, gospel of the world, is the jacked up world, sinful world, rebellious world that he came to die for. 
Now, sometimes we think of sin, we think of just breaking the moral standard of God. Uh, you know, we think of the Ten Commandments and stealing and, and, and lying and committing adultery and all those things. And yes, that's sin. Sin is lawlessness. But sin is all a matter of the heart, most importantly. Sin is not just breaking the fifth commandment or the sixth commandment. It's first and foremost breaking the very first commandment. Maybe some of you don't know it. So have no other God before him. So it's not just breaking the usual sins we like to quote. Sin, according to scripture, is running from God. Building your life away from God. Building your identity away from God. Building your hopes and your dreams apart from God. Seeking love, seeking to matter, seeking to be secure and accepted but seeking in the wrong places in a twisted way. That's what the Samaritan woman was doing. It's called idolatry. It's one of the sins. It is not one of sins. It's the fruit. It's the the root of sin. Why do we commit adultery and steal and dishonor and all those things that we do? It's because we have created an idol, a, 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 a functional savior, something we look to in the place of God to receive the love, security, fulfillment, our rest, our contentment our identity and other things than God. The woman was running after relationships to fill that thirsty soul and she was not getting it. It will not, it will not satisfied. But now you're the savior of the world. Someone outside of herself, someone that could, that could relocate the dislocation of her heart that seeks and wanders around trying to cling to something that will never satisfy, never rescue will never save you. Confession and belief is how we appropriate this truth by trusting in the one who can satisfy you, who can give you love, give you security, give you fulfillment, forgive you of your sins. And his name is Jesus. Now let me close with this. Let me go back to the question. Follow me, please. How do we become a bold witness? It's not just realizing that Jesus is the Savior and he can give you love, security, fulfillment, and identity. It is by truly embracing the will of the work of the Father that he accomplished for us on the cross of Jesus Christ, on the cross that Jesus Christ died for. Look really quickly at verse 34. It's not just that he's the Savior, but how he accomplished the work of forgiveness, of acceptance, of love in our hearts through the cross. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you have an NIV, it says the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Do you see? On the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Same Greek root word. When you see Jesus' will, Jesus' work culminating in the brutal and cruel crucifixion for your sins to pay your debt, to die in your place in love so that he can bring you into God's family so that you could drink and be eternally satisfied. How could you not tell others who are dying, who are thirsty, who are hungry, how could you not say, come, come and drink. I have drunk the well from living water. Come, have your sins forgiven Be renewed, be born again, be accepted and received into God's family. How could you not do that? You know, when that is true, and it is, there is no self-righteousness. You came the same way they came. There's no respect of persons because he died for all men. For whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And they said this indeed 
This is indeed the Savior of the world. Family, are we prepared to step into 2016 with an urgency in love, demonstrating God's love, declaring his love and truth, turning conversations around, telling people about our great God and Savior. May their sin and their brokenness never, never, never chase us away. There is no difference. We come the same way, and that's through the cross. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're thirsty. You're so thirsty. It's been years. You're chasing things. Maybe it's the first time you ever heard that your sin is chasing after things that will never satisfy. Turn to Jesus Christ. He died in your place. He took the penalty for your sins so that you could be reconciled to the Father, have a relationship with God, and be satisfied in forgiveness, in acceptance, in love. If you've never done that, I I pray, we'll pray that you receive the Lord Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior, just as they did. They confessed, you're the Savior. I'm a sinner. You saved me from my sin. You brought me into a right relationship with the Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this beautiful narrative that you have given to us in your word. Lord Jesus, you are so kind and so gentle and so caring that you didn't leave this woman where she was in her sin, but led her to a place of self-revelation, revealing yourself to her. God, we pray that your spirit right now would reveal Jesus to us, that we would see him, glorify him, run to him, worship him as the true savior who came and died and rose again, who offers life, eternal life, living water that flows up and bubbles up and pours out over us, Lord. Father, we pray that we would be a people that would be be a people that just bubble over with the love of Christ, that we would, in 2016, be about doing your will and your work, and that is in love, showing people how much you love them and declaring to them your love as well. Father, that's our prayer. And Father, we pray that for your glory, for your glory, Lord, those who reap, those who harvest all, Lord, that you would give the increase. Rescue them, we pray. Use us mightily, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.